Welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on the Jack the Ripper murders. This is episode four, Sour Grapes, Myths from the Whitechapel Murders. I'm Jonathan Mangus, coming to you from Topeka, Kansas. Today joining us is Howard Brown in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Hello, John. Good to be here, buddy. Hi, Howard. Mike Covell is in Hole in the UK. Hello. Hello. And we have Robert McLaughlin in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. Hello, everyone. Hi, Robert. And our special guest joining us today is Dan Norder, Editor-in-Chief of Ripper Notes Magazine, as well as co-organizer of the upcoming 2008 U.S. Conference on Jack the Ripper. Hi, Dan, and thanks for being our guest today. Hi, Jonathan, everyone. Thanks for having me on. Um, Now, I wanted to get uh, a little bit of information about Ripper Notes out of the way first. Okay, and, and um, if you just give us a general history of the magazine um, and how you became involved in it. Okay, uh, Ripper Notes originally started back in 1999 as an offshoot of a group called Casebook Productions. Casebook Productions, despite the name, is not affiliated with Casebook Jack the Ripper, the website that we're all familiar with. Um, It was a group of people who had their own website, they posted information, and they also organized the first U.S. Jack the Ripper conference. Um, The first editor-in-chief of the magazine was Sam Gafford, and he had a variety of other people helping him out at the time. After that, the editors were Chris George, and then Chris George and Christopher Michael DeGrazia were co-editors for a while. And then Chris George um, took over for a year, a couple years at the end there before handing it off to me. And what kind of circulation does the magazine have? Uh, well, the magazine itself, we publish it in a book format. So there's, there's two different audiences for it. The first group is the subscribers, the people who know ahead of time that they want every issue when it comes out. So they pay for it ahead of time, and whenever one does come out, we send it out to them. That's a couple hundred people in the U.S. and also in the U.K. And then the, uh, the book part of it is the same issue goes out with a, an ISBN, goes out to bookstores. You can purchase it online on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, pretty much any place you could buy any other book. Um, you can special order it, too. So any place that can order books can get the copies. And we get a fair number of people who do it that way. They may not be interested in buying all of them. They just buy them one by one. And this is your first year being the organizer of the United States Jack the Ripper Conference. Yes. Uh, Kelly Robinson and I, my fiance, are, are sort of stepping in to take over you know, the process there. The previous organizers... Uh, had said sometime last summer that they would have been able to put one together for 2008. So we decided to make sure that one still happened. Well, that's great. And um, give us a little bit of information on 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 um, the location and everything and the dates. Uh, the U.S. Ripper Conference this year will be the second weekend in October. I keep wanting to say the 10th through the 12th. I'm not sure if that's right offhand, but I think that's right. It's the second weekend, and it's going to be in Knoxville, Tennessee. Um, Not a whole lot of Jack the Ripper activity in Knoxville, but you have that problem with any U.S. conference. It just happens to be where we can talk to the hotels and stuff and get that all sorted out. Well, I look forward to attending my first Ripper conference um, in Knoxville, Tennessee this year. So... We'll be glad to have you. Well, thank you. Uh, John, 
Uh, yes. This is Mike. Um, hey, Mike. Seeing that you went to the 2007 Wolverhampton Ripper Conference, what kind of memories uh, did you come away with um, from visiting that one? Oh, well, that was great. That was that was the first conference that I made it to. That it was in the UK. Um, yeah. It was it was good to see everybody over there. There's a lot of the people make both the US and the UK conferences, but there's also a group of people that really only make that one. So it was my first time meeting a whole lot of the people that I've known for years, some of whom have worked in the magazine and others I just knew from online. Um, but the organizers of that one, Claudia and Andy Aleph and Adam Wood, they did a really great job putting that together. They had a, a theme this year. They based the whole thing on Catherine Eddowes so that the speakers could talk about her life and her murder and all the various topics there. So it, it really uh, kind of put the focus there on, on a topic that is often ignored, you know. Hey, Dan, it's Robert here. I've got a quick question. Okay. Um, for those of uh, the audience listening, uh, many of them probably thinking about writing an article. Or if okay. And... Uh, as publisher of Ripper Notes, uh, the submissions from prospective authors and writers, uh, what are you looking for if, if people out there are listening to us and, you, you know, they've been studying the Ripper and they're thinking about, you know, wanting to publish a piece? What advice would you give them or, uh, for your magazine and for the other magazines that are out there? Okay. Well, the different magazines, I really think each of them has sort of a niche. I know, for example, that the Whitechapel Society Journal has like an overall word limit. I don't remember what it is, but I remember when they announced the limit, I was kind of like, well, that's fine because that's kind of like my lower limit. You know? So the shorter pieces there would fit a lot better in the Whitechapel Society Journal. Uh, we tend to do more in-depth writing. Uh, we've got a lot more pages than the other publications, so it, it tends to work better, I think. In the, uh, it, It's not like a, a regular sort of um, what's the news that happened this month or last couple months, but more of an in-depth on certain topics. Um, we're really going for the idea that it could be on a bookshelf and people years later can pull it out and use it as reference on various topics. Um, but the main thing, I think, is, you know, get a sense of what each of the publication does and has already covered recently, and then to focus on researching things and, like, citing your references and and really looking for any new information that might be out there. Um, okay, let's uh, get to the topic at hand here, um, which are myths connected to the Whitechapel murders. Um, Robin O'Dell, in his book *Ripperology: A Study of the World's First Serial Killer and Literary Phenomenon*, admits that many inaccuracies have crept into not only his own works but the works of other authors up through the 1960s. Um, he mentions, as an example, um, the rings and coins arranged at the feet of Annie Chapman, and. Um, he claims that these mistakes are due basically to the authors relying solely on the newspaper accounts as their only primary source material. And there are researchers to this day that focus mainly on discovering fresh insights through these same contemporary press articles that led so many Ripper authors astray. Um, so, in your opinion, have the Whitechapel murders become... As a singular period of time where the historians or researchers should just be best to avoid the press reports? Or is it more that the researcher must have just a healthy uh, amount of objectivity and skepticism to the press reports that they view? And that being said, um, the uh, objectivity uh, seems to have been in a, in a way lacking with uh, authors up through the 1960s until the release of the uh, official records. So, what, what's your opinion on that? Um, well, first off, I, I think that uh, these days we're kind of spoiled in that we have a lot of access to a lot of newspaper reports and online records and things. We're really in a position to check things a lot more quickly and easily than, than the early authors did. 
So when the people talk about um, how they relied upon newspaper reports, I think that that was really just because that's all they had to go on at the time. So I can certainly understand why they did that. I, I do think that they need a healthy bit of skepticism when reading these accounts, and at least with comparing the different news accounts, a lot of them have different versions of the story. So right there, that would be a good thing to check on, you know, to see which one might sound more realistic. Um, I'm Dan- sure the other people on here probably have opinions on that too. But yeah, Howard, you were going to say something. Uh- yeah, this is for Dan. Um, are there any specific newspapers, in your um, in your opinion, that you think are more reliable than the others? Uh, you care to elaborate on that? Um, I I don't know if there was any that were significantly more reliable. I, it was something that I was looking into with a research project that uh, Kelly and I have been working on recently, and uh, it. Uh, I think certain ones, like, I know the Daily Telegraph had a good reputation. I I don't know that they were heads and tails above the rest, but they did a pretty good job. Where things like the Star, which is more of a radical newspaper, seemed to be a little bit more willing to go with the rumors and innuendo. But really, most of the newspapers were just copying what everyone else said and really repeating a lot of the errors that crept in other reports. Yeah. Do you think that um, a lot of the myths or a lot of the inaccuracies that have been reported in the newspapers that eventually have been found out to be inaccuracies was due to the competitiveness of the newspaper industry at that time? Yeah, absolutely. There was a huge rush for the papers to try to be the first ones out with any piece of information. And just like today, when, when there's some big news that everyone wants to hear about, the the journalists want to be the first ones, and the willingness to double-check their sources and things like that just kind of gets left by the wayside. And let's take one of those myths. Um, let's start off with uh, the, the uh, Elizabeth Stride having um, uh, black grapes gripped into her right hand um, at the time of her death. And in some accounts, it's just a grape stem. Um, but um, and and I know that there's been a Tom author Tom Westcott has written uh, uh, fairly recently about this in Ripper Notes. Um, now um, here's a, a case where um, the press reported, um, and this involves the witness uh, Alfred Packer, the grape salesman, uh, uh, the fruit vendor on Burner Street, um, but. Um, I want to get your take on that because here you have a case of of, um, of, of witnesses uh, pre the Packer interview with the police that 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 stated that they saw uh, grape stalks covered in blood on the ground. I'm referring to Mrs. Rosenfeld in particular, and um, and other newspapers followed suit um, on first October, referring to Stride clutching grapes in her hand. Um, detectives supposedly found grape stalks in a drain in a passage. Um, Louis Dimschultz uh, claimed in the evening news to have seen grapes held in, in one hand and sweetmeats in the other. But now um, we kind of doubt uh, all of these tales. Um, what, what is the story behind these, these grapes? Oh, well, Jonathan, that actually gets to be really complicated because there's all sorts of people in there making various claims, and, and part of the problem is knowing when these claims were first made. One thing that happens with a lot of these myths is that someone will start with something that isn't right, and then other people, whether it be the newspapers or even witnesses, kind of take the story and run with it. So um, one of the things you mentioned in there was that the detectives found uh, grape stock and and things like that. Uh, We need to be sure there that we note that those detectives weren't actually with the police. Those were detectives that were working for the Whitechapel Vigilance Committee, and their credentials to be detectives really were that they managed to convince some people to hire them. Um, the, The main detective there was actually someone who had a history of uh, being a pimp. He was an East End man. He later on was arrested for writing threatening letters to women. He's not really an upstanding, reliable 
police type person. So immediately there, you have to take anything he had to say with a grain of salt. Right. Dad, you're referring to Charles Legrand, correct? Yes. Okay. And he, Legrand of the Strand, because that, that's where his detective offices were located. Right. Um, now, another um, another myth that arose out of the Stride murder was uh, the uh, man with the black leather bag, um, mm-hmm. which has um, maybe in part led to um, the, the popular representation uh, of the image of Jack the Ripper, um, either carrying a leather bag or, in some cases, a, a leather medical bag. And that... Um, was the sighting by Mrs. Mortimer of, of cigarette uh, salesman Leon Goldstein. Um, this um, story of Goldstein carrying the Gladstone bag um, was um, was pretty much wrapped up um, uh, because Goldstein himself went to the police as soon as he read his description in the newspaper and, and explained the whole situation of who he was and where he was going and what he had in the bag. But um, that didn't stop um, Inspector Dew from um, claiming in in his book I Caught Crippen that Mrs. Mortimer um, was the only person ever to see the Ripper um, in the vicinity of his crimes, referring to Leon Goldstein. Now, so here you have the case of a um, retired uh, police officer. Um, Creating a myth of of uh, uh, a, wit, a witness ripper sighting, um, and um, and that that's been uh, and that took off, um, you know, with whether it was that coupled with representations of Jekyll and Hyde, and there were other um, um, suspects uh, stopped and questioned, if not, uh, you know, brought in and interrogated uh, just based upon the fact that they were carrying black bags. Right. I, I don't think Dew really created that myth since the, he was writing that in 1938. He just seemed to kind of go along with the myth that everyone expected at that point. We don't know how directly involved he was in the Jack the Ripper case, and it sounds like a lot of his recollections come from remembering newspaper reports. <laughs> So the the black bag concept was already pretty well established for many years by that point. It, as soon as Leon Goldstein was cited by Mrs. Fanny Mortimer, it, it just kind of took off from there. Other people reported seeing people with bags, and it kind of became the expected thing for people to see. Hi, Dennis, Robert. Uh, quick question. Um, regarding uh, McNaughton, if I may... Uh, McNaughton, McNaughton in his nineteen in his eighteen ninety four memoranda that he deposited in the files, where he listed that there were five victims and five victims only. This has sort of been passed down from generation to generation, and it's only oh, probably in the last twenty years or so that it's even been challenged, and even then, um, not consistently. Uh, what are your feelings on on that? Oh well, I'm probably pretty well known for thinking that McNaughton 5, sometimes called the Canonical 5, really doesn't have a lot of basis in reality. I mean, certainly those five were the ones that were most directly linked, you know, their murder dates. It all happened within just the space of a couple months there, but but I really think that looking at other serial killers and some other murders that had happened around the time, that it's entirely possible that there were other victims. Um, I also know that a number of people have tried to challenge some of the people in McNaughton's list that they might not be Ripper victims. I personally don't put a lot of weight into that. I mean, I, I agree it's conceivable, but I don't really see any solid reasoning to exclude any of the five. Dan, uh, Dr. Bond is actually the originator of the canonical five, correct? Um, he did a report after the Mary Jane Kelly murder where he compared all the previous cases in the Whitechapel murder file, um, which at that point I believe would have been seven. And at that point he said that of those seven, the five that we now know of as the canonical five were the right. only five that were linked. Yeah, 
personally, as a, as an aside here, you you uh, you favor Tabram to be a uh, Ripper victim? I Would don't you, honestly, uh, I don't honestly know if she was. I don't think anyone can say for sure whether she was or not. But I I do think that there's a good possibility. She certainly can't be ruled out. Absolutely. Um, the interesting thing with Bond coming up with that list of five names is later on with some other murders that happened in the area, he added at least one more and said that that person, I believe it was Alice McKenzie, was Correct. also killed by the same person who killed the previous five. But when McNaughton made his list, he didn't include Alice McKenzie for some reason. Right. I'm not sure why, but it, it just if he's basing that on Bond's opinion, then he's ignored Bond's opinion. Yeah. All right, well, thank you. You're welcome. Um, another thing I wanted to uh, bring up with another one of the victims is Catherine Eddowes and some of the myths that surround her murder and the uh, hours uh, leading up to her murder. Um, now, um, there, there's, a, there's a, the story that she um, returned from hop picking in Kent to uh, collect the reward on Jack the Ripper. And... Um, that story was told uh, to the newspapers by the superintendent of the casual ward in Shoe Lane. Um, could you talk a little bit about that myth? Um, well, that, that particular story, I mean, there were a lot of stories that, that came about in newspaper reports. People were trying to come up with something to tell people so they'd have something to put in the papers. I know there was also a story later on in uh, a couple newspapers where a woman claimed to have been a friend of Edo's and that the week before Edo's was talking about how she knew the killer and was trying to get the reward. And it, it seemed like it was based upon the earlier story. The problem with that story was, you know, Edo's wasn't even in town. She was hot picking. And uh, so this supposed friend of hers, we know that story at least is false. Uh, as far as the earlier one, I don't know. It doesn't seem like there's any reason to believe it really happened. But then even if it had, she could have been saying it as a joke. Or maybe she, like lots of other people, maybe had an idea about someone she thought was suspicious and thought she'd tell the police on the off chance that maybe that guy was Jack the Ripper. And that certainly wouldn't make her any different from hundreds of other people living in the area. Or maybe she said it when she wasn't sober. <laughs> well, that's true, too. Right, and this has led to speculation by some that buy into this theory that... Um, she she had a prearranged meeting with Jack the Ripper um, after she was released from jail. Um, but uh, as you said, um, Eddowes was absent from London during the entire time of the Ripper scare. Um, so any kind of suspicions she may have had would have had to have reached her um, while she was hot picking. Um, well, true. The, the Martha Tabram murder would have happened before she left for hot picking. And, you know, it hadn't really blown into the full media sensation yet. But she could have theoretically known something about that incident. I don't know. So it's not like she's completely impossible to know anything. But it, it does seem unlikely that she would have had any way to know anything beyond any other person. Although she would have been able to read newspaper accounts in Kent because it was, as you said, it was quite widespread. Well, uh, true, yes. Yeah, it's not like she was in the dark. I mean, the news reports went around the world at the time, so it's not like she'd be, get back and say, you know, murder, what? Because it would have been well known. All right, Mike, is there something you'd like to chime in here? Yeah, the popular myth of all the victims knowing each other, um, featured in several films and several books. Um, would you say there's any any weight to that claim? Or um, well, I don't really think there's anything solid to the idea that any of the victims knew each other. There was various reports here and there that said, you know that one of the victims might have known another one. The most common one there was the report that Catherine Eddowes supposedly uh, lived right next door to Mary Jane Kelly in kind of a what they called the, the shed that uh, the landlord of Mary Jane Kelly also had there. But there doesn't seem to be anything to support that other than some testimony by some women getting into the papers 
And certainly, you know, if she had lived there, you know, as we know that she was also out of town and that when she was in town, she and her common-law husband were staying in lodging houses. So it doesn't seem like it's very realistic at all. Yeah, and if I might, and if I might add to that, um, it also seems that you know that's one of the many uh, myths and misconceptions that have sprung from uh, Joseph Corman Sickert, you know, who alleged uh, the royal conspiracy, the royal Masonic conspiracy, and it was sort of through him that the victims knew each other. And then Stephen Knight later wrote about it. You know, one of the chapters in his book was all the, all roads lead to Dorset Street, where at various times he tried to place all of the canonical five victims in Dorset Street, but you know, census records have through time proved that wrong, and, and uh, as Dan says, we don't really know. Right. Well, as far as writing stories go, and, and that's really what a lot of these Ripper authors have done, it, it makes it a lot easier if all the women knew each other, because then you can come up with various reasons why they were killed, you know, they were friends and they were sharing some secret, and therefore they all must be killed. And, and things like that, but there really doesn't seem to be any basis for it. So certainly the newspapers at the time, I would think that if there were anything solid that showed that they'd known each other, that it would have gotten a lot more attention than it did. Right, I you believe know, that um, Don Suda mentioned in his dissertation, um, Grave Spitting and Other Tall Tales or something like that, I'll have the links up on, on the website, that the story of Edo's uh, sleeping in the shed originated from two women who... Um, viewed her at the mortuary, but were right. un- unable to identify her, um, uh, uh, didn't know her name, didn't know her nickname, um, basically never heard her speak, but yet claimed that she stayed in the shed at Dorset Street. Um, and um, so the argument against them is that, uh, or at least what Don Sudan um, mentions, is that uh, Catherine Eddowes was known to be a boisterous um lady and um what are the chances of her crashing in a small shed with a room full of women and none of them knowing her name or even her nickname you know right um that article when it ran in issue number 24 of ripper notes um did explain some of that sort of thing um it's sort of uh it just goes to show that a lot of people kind of got in the news. They wanted to say something, and behind it all, they didn't really have much to support it. But the journalists just knew a story when they saw it and ran with it. Dan, I wanted to ask you something that you and I were talking about yesterday about uh, Catherine Eddowes, since we're talking about Kate. Okay. Um, when she when she checked out of the... Um, when, excuse me. When she was arrested and she told Hutt that her name was nothing... Mm. Um, the the it seems to be there's a consensus that she actually said that her name was nothing, but you and I were talking about it yesterday, and the, the possibility exists that she simply didn't say anything, and that in the inquest that Hutt related it in that in that fashion, and it's been misinterpreted through the years that she she used her surname as nothing or used that name as nothing. What do you think about that? Um, I would think that's a plausible scenario. I would have to double check the records to see if there was something in there that might disprove it, but um, it, it's just, you know, seems like there's a lot of, a lot of people's arguments seem to be based upon certain turns of phrase that when you go back and look at them, they could mean something else entirely. And people just have a general idea of, of how they expect um, things to be, have gone back then, and yeah. they kind of run with it in other words, at the inquest, whoever was annotating it simply wrote down nothing as if it was a surname, uh, just to make my point you know my point clear to anybody who's listening yeah uh, and that she actually didn't she she did she absolutely said nothing you know but but not yeah. the name nothing okay, right she thank you. didn't say anything and he wrote right, down exactly that she said nothing, nothing. <laughs> okay I'm another um a thing that uh, it goes along the same lines as Howard was talking about, as far as her arrest goes, is um, is that she she went by the name Jane Kelly um, mm-hmm. ar- around this same her, time. Mary Ann Kelly is actually what she used her name as when she was arrested. Mary Ann Kelly, yeah, but then wasn't she also known as uh, she also went by Jane Kelly? I think that's one of them that was in some report somewhere. Right. 
And um, John Kelly, her uh, live-in boyfriend or common-law husband, um, did admit that that, uh, they discussed the Whitechapel murders um, amongst each other quite often. And um, that... um, so, so that would form a basis of her, uh, you know, talking about maybe how she she was uh, she knew who Jack the Ripper was. Right, and people have speculated that perhaps, perhaps she really did stay at the shed. Perhaps that's why she picked Mary Kelly as her name because Mary Kelly was staying there. Other people suggested that perhaps Mary Kelly is just kind of a general alias for a prostitute. I mean, there's, there's so many different possibilities there that I think anyone who hangs a theory on a particular interpretation of it's really on a on weak footing. And Dan, do you think that some of the the theories, uh, the myths persist because of the theories that that people are still willing to accept a lot of the old myths because it suits their particular suspect? Do you think that that's why some of the these myths and misconceptions continue today? Yeah, most most definitely. I, I think everyone would agree that they've seen cases of that, and I, I think that that's kind of a, a natural way for people to look at things. They think that they know the answer already, and they interpret the evidence to kind of fit what they want it to be and not necessarily look at all the different other possibilities involved. All right, Howard, you had some more um, myths. Oh, I got a lot of them, brother. I I got a lot of them. I have one more about Catherine Eddowes for Dan and anybody else. Um, As we all know, in the A to Z, it's been mentioned, it's been suggested rather, not not stated as a fact, but it's been suggested that Catherine Eddowes was not a prostitute. Um, Would you like to comment on that, Dan? Oh, well... um I think that Stuart Evans and and Don Rumbelo in in their book, Jack the Ripper, Scotland Yard Investigates, uh, were pretty good in pointing out that, you know, we don't really necessarily know, just like we don't know any particular thing, but the evidence is all there. We know that she was in an area known for prostitution. We know that she was needing money. We know that somehow or another earlier that day she managed to get drunk somehow. She had to get the money somewhere. She didn't and get a tap dance, and that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, and she had claimed that she was going to go see her sister to borrow money, but the sister had moved and was right. living far away, and it just there's no way she could have gone to visit her and come back. And then later on, I believe her sister had said that she wouldn't have given her money anyway. Right, and Inspector McWilliam of the City of London Police had, had said that Conway, um, Thomas Conway, that is, had was eventually compelled to leave her on account of her drunken and immoral habits. Right. So, yeah, that to me that would indicate she at least you know indulged in casual prostitution at some point in time. Um, I mean, it's the Victorian era. Immoral habits could be just about anything, but the inference there could be that that's what happened. Yeah. Yeah. And and Thank also, you. and also, there's the distinction between prostitution in Victorian uh, London as opposed to prostitution today. A lot of people have this conceived notion about. Uh, what they understand about prostitution today, but but in Victorian London, uh, these women, mostly over forty, with the exception of Kelly, uh, you know, were selling the only commodity that they had left, and and that was their body. Uh, right. You know, to get casual work was very difficult for them because there were always uh, younger girls who could do it for less, who could do more work and for less pay, and uh, really they were selling the only commodity that they had left. Yeah, that's a very important point. I, I think that a lot of people overlook or don't really even have any realization of just how poor these women were. Right, was, and what it took for them to survive on a daily basis. Right. I mean, a lot of people, they kind of hear prostitute and they suddenly, you know, think... Some people were like, oh, well, you know, what do they expect? But there was very limited options for women at that time to raise money. Mike uh, in Hull, you have uh, something you want to say? Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Yeah, the the whole myth of the killer taking the key to number thirteen Miller's Court. Um, does anyone have any views on on that particular myth? That was the key to Mary Jane Kelly's room. That's correct. Yeah. Was there a key? If there was a key, who took it? Was the window always broken? 
Well, Barnett so, said it. Yeah, Barnett said it went missing uh, sometime previous, and I assume he meant before they broke the window at the end of October. And a lot of people have made the, you know, case for the missing key that, oh, because the door was locked uh, when they arrived on November 9th when Mary Kelly was murdered and they couldn't gain entry, that the killer must have taken the key with him. Uh, but as we know from Barnett's testimony and from Aberline backing that up, that they could reach through the broken window and pull back the bolt. And that when, and then when the lock was actually left on the latch, that you could gain an enter without the door even being locked. And really, I think that scenario of the missing key only works if Barnett is the murderer, right? Right. That seems to be the primary um, suspect that's named when the key comes up. Yeah. Um, I have something, uh, since we're talking about Mary Kelly, and that's that um, for a, a good 50 years, uh, there was um, speculation that she could have been pregnant when she was murdered. And um, this... Um, this idea was uh, used as pretty much the basis of William Stewart's book, um, his 1939 book, um, uh, Jack the Ripper, A New Theory, I think it was called, um, in which he posits the midwife theory of Jill the Ripper. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, um, and, it, and it wasn't discovered until 1987 that, in fact, Mary Kelly wasn't pregnant. So here's here's a, a case of um, an unknown, uh, you know, the la- la- lack of evidence um, sprouting uh, myths about the case that are then uh, turned into suspect theories. Right. Right, because, uh, um, you know, d- uh, Dr. Thomas Bond, when his notes were returned, is, is when uh, it dispelled a lot of the medical myths surrounding Mary Jane Kelly. And uh, not only that, uh, but when the photographs uh, started appearing, uh, you know, first with Don Rumbelow, and, but later when Farson published them and, and onward, it, it dispelled the myths, uh, you know, that uh, survived for decades that uh, Mary Jane's entrails were hung from uh, picture nails uh, and, and various notions such as that. Well, so, actually, I got to, you know, throw in... I have to leave out the possibility there that there might be something to that. I don't know that it's... It's uh, ruled out necessarily. And certainly there's no evidence that it did happen other than some stray stories here and there. But I, I don't think as far as uh, things that Jack the Ripper would have done that it's too out there. Um, and we know that Dr. Bond's notes, or at least we suspect that Dr. Bond's notes uh, weren't complete. So at least in theory there might be another page or something that would list some other things. But well, yeah. I, because it should be pointed out that there were uh, notes that he made uh, on November 9th, and they weren't uh, autopsy notes. They were observations that he made at the scene of the crime on November 9th, that the autopsy on Mary Jane Kelly from him and from Phillips and from Brown is, are still missing. Right. But, you know, the idea that, that uh, I know some people have convinced themselves that they can actually see an entrail hanging from the ceiling in, in one of the photos, and that's just, there's no way. It, the particular thing they're looking at there is so incredibly small. I mean, it, it's a very close-up photo that the idea right. that this would be an entrail just is complete nonsense. Uh, Robert, what would you think that was, a, um, an anomaly created by light? It looks like a shaft of light uh, coming from a crack uh, in the door with the door being open. Like between um, the door frame and the door? The door frame and the door. And, yeah. I, you know, I, I know Simon Wood has specifically made this case, and he's written about it in Ripperologist. He wrote a two-part article. But, you know, it, it's seriously flawed in, in that he sees many objects in the picture. And, and of course, you know, we can play that Rorschach inkblot, inkblot test forever, though, can't we? Um, there's... there's there's nothing else to substantiate. But you have if, to admit if you that, actually sorry. No, if you, if you, you look don't. at the, the <laughs> if you look at the table in the photograph, um, if you follow the anomaly down, you can actually see. If it is, it, we all know it's a shaft of light. You can see it's a shaft of light by looking at the table. Um, if you open a door with a table behind it, the shaft of light will come down until it hits the table, and then right. shine horizontal. Um, and it does right. that in the photograph. Um, we actually, before uh, Christmas, um, there were some photos posted um, on Casebook um, 
and people were drawing lines and, and what they thought this particular anomaly was. Um, and pretty much everyone came to the conclusion that it, it was simply a, a shaft of light from a partially open door, um, possibly to give the photographer a little bit more light. Um, um, but you can definitely see that there's a shaft of light there. Now, although, Dan, earlier you discounted um, Walter Dew's claims in his book, I Caught Crippen, but isn't he the one who said that he slipped on um, entrails or what have you uh, in Mary Kelly's room um, upon entering? And and um, wouldn't that lead, if you believe that, um, and this goes to Robert also. Don't wouldn't you guys both admit that there are things in that room that we that the photographs uh, did not capture? Um, well, yeah, it's certainly possible that there are things in there that that the two photos, the two photo angles that we have, don't show. I, I think Walter Dew was talking about slipping on gore in general on the floor, like blood and and things like that not any specific organs, but, you know, the thing with Walter Dew is we don't even know if he was at the scene that day. Certainly a yeah, mix of its store, but as yeah, far Deuce, as I know, he's not been placed there. Yeah, Dew said he was there, but we don't have independent confirmation that he was, other than his word for it. And, and even if he was there, I mean, he wrote I Caught Crippen in 1938. That's 50 years after the crimes, and that's a long way to, to remember. That's a long way back. Right, it is, but... Um, and he also made the claim in, in the book I Caught Crippen um, that, um, and this is getting slightly off topic, but that um, that the discovery of the remains of Cora Crippen was the most gruesome sight he had seen since Miller's Court. Right. Well, the police had the photographs. I mean, even if he wasn't there, he might have seen the photo at some point, possibly. Yeah. Um, but and it's natural for someone to write an autobiography or memoirs to make themselves the star of the show. Mm-hmm. I think that's what people expect when they buy one of those things. Right. I don't think that we have to say that, you know, imply that Walter Dew was a liar or anything. You know, he may have told stories for a while and they could have grown over the years. That's kind of how memories work sometimes. Yeah, and, and we've seen that, like, from the memoirs of the senior detectives that wrote them. You know, whether yeah. it's Major, Major Smith or, you know, McNaughton or Anderson or others. That, you, know, you know, there are inconsistencies and problems in them. All right, uh, Howard, you have some more um, uh, items you'd like to discuss? Oh, yeah, I have uh, a few more, and I don't think we have enough time left in the show to get into the myths of Donald McCormick, but some <laughs> of them, uh, some of them, uh, well, for instance, the handwritten Chronicles of Crime, oh, yeah. um, Hermione Dudley, uh, the Old Nickel Gang, a klazowski Petachenko link, um, Elizabeth Long and a woman named Daryl as two separate witnesses, the bloodhounds getting lost, the Ginny Kidney of Eddowes, the two Liverpool Jack the Letter letters, Jack the Ripper letters ad infinitum. Which one of the myths that McCormick is, is credited for would you say has been the most enduring, Dan? Most enduring? Um, or the one, that may, the, the, one that, the one that impresses you the most, if not the most enduring. That might be a little difficult. Yeah. So many. <laughs> uh, uh, Dan, oh, Dan, think about that for a while. Okay. Uh, while I answer it for you first. Uh, <laughs> in, in, my, in my opinion, uh, probably the Eight Little Whores rhyme. Oh, that's uh, a good one. There's no contemporary evidence that it existed. Now, explain yet, that, um, Robert, just for listeners who may not be familiar with it. Uh, uh, McCormick wrote a, wrote a poem in it. Uh, Attributing it at the time that that it was written in, in 1888, uh, and uh, it, it's it's been sort of used ever since. Uh, parts of it because uh, it because it contains P.C. Spicer's story uh, of of coming across a man you know with a prostitute in the bed. Oh, right. The Brixton and, Doctor. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And and uh, it's also uh, been used uh, in the Diary of Jack the Ripper. Uh, Allegedly written by James Maybrick, but we all know it wasn't. And so, so parts of that, or all of that, eight little horse rhyme has sort of endured. Even though I think uh, you know most of McCormick's myths have been put to bed. You know, whether it be the Dutton Papers, you know, you know the Okrana Gazette information, the uh, you know the George Chapman 
you know, corrections. But yeah, Dan, if you have anything to add to that. Um, well, I, I think out of all of those, probably the one that is most enduring out of his group is, is the idea that um, Albert Backert was told that, that they didn't have to look for the Ripper anymore because he drowned. There's absolutely no basis for that story whatsoever, and, and that one kind of still survives to this day to some extent, and especially important because it got put in a lot of books about Montague Druitt because, you know, he had drowned. And it, it certainly doesn't meet with anything we know about Albert Backert's later actions. He was still out trying to find the Ripper at least six months later. So if he had heard something like this, he certainly didn't take it seriously. But there's no evidence that he was told this. And, and the police certainly were out looking for Jack the Ripper for several years later. Now, I want you guys to cover, um, before we run out of time, um, the Monroe... Uh, hot potato claim. Um, uh, I know Howard uh, has been interested in this um, lately. Um, and um, the, the origin of the grandson of, of Monroe and um, uh, saying that the, the Ripper was too much of a, a hot potato, I believe that's all he said. And that's been kind of um, uh, fed into the royal conspiracy theory. Uh, excuse me, uh, uh, b before Dan answers, actually there's something before that, uh, an antecedent to that, and that was the memo, the, uh, the memo from Evelyn Ruggles Bryce, the private secretary to Home Secretary Matthews, and in that, Matthews um, says, stimulate the police about the Whitechapel murders, absent Anderson, Monroe might be willing to give a to give a hint to the CID people if needful. And it's been misinterpreted as saying, stimulate the police about the Whitechapel murders. Monroe might be willing to give a hint to the CID people if necessary. Um, the, the second one seems to have, uh, uh, seems to be making the rounds a lot more than the original um, comment, which had absent Anderson. Am I mm -hmm. right, Dan? Yeah. The, uh, we tend to look at the case and... and think about all the police that were working on it and not pay attention to some of the details of the police, you know, joining the investigation and not being around. Anderson um, was placed in charge of the investigation right around the time of the Nichols murder, but then immediately went off to kind of a month's vacation for medical purposes, for his, according to what his doctor wanted him to do, he said. So he wasn't even there. So it, as far as the police were concerned, they really didn't have an official leader in charge. They had Swanson, who was supposed to be in charge of collecting all the documents and stuff. They had Aberline on the ground, but as far as bureaucrats go, they didn't have an official one. And so I think it's, it's pretty certain that all he was saying there was that Monroe had had that position before, so he certainly could have helped the police out in that way. And then we move along into the future, and we see, I believe it's the uh, grandson of Monroe, Christopher Monroe, um, who, is, who is said to have told Keith Skinner uh, something along the lines of the, the hot potato. Um, that was what um, John was alluding to in the beginning there. Right. Um, some of the, the books that have come out over the years have gone through and, and talked to descendants of various case, well-known case personalities and stuff. And in that case, I, I think the, the the claim there was that a, a son of Monroe's told another son that the whole Jack the Ripper case was a political hot potato. Right. And then certain authors hear that and go, well, if it's a political hot potato, that must mean that the Ripper was somehow politically connected. Well, no, no, it doesn't. It, it just could be very reasonably looking at the situation that they didn't catch the Ripper and they were being criticized a lot and you know, certainly nobody at the time wanted to take the blame for failing to capture this person. And then personally, uh, you know, my feelings on that is that you can interpret hot potato so many ways. Right. And, and the mere fact that Monroe doesn't write any articles on the Ripper, doesn't give any interviews on the Ripper, doesn't write any memoirs, uh, so it's difficult to say what he meant. Because mm -hmm. he did not leave us any uh, information from which we can gather more about. 
it. And, you know, whatever he may have said originally, it may not have been the exact wording that even got handed down. That's true as well. All right, Mike, um, would you like to uh, throw something in here? I agree with uh, what Dan said. I mean, you know, politically, um, talking about something that could ultimately, you know, and did cost people their jobs and stuff like that, um, you know, that, the way I see it, hot potato is referring to, you know, people don't want to bring it up. That's the hot potato. Um, it can make or break people's careers, um, and which we know, you know, in hindsight, it, it did a couple of people. Um, I was just looking through the some newspaper reports earlier on regarding uh, Charles Warren um, and his resignation, um, and, and that to me is what it, what it's referring to as a political hot potato, nothing more. Um, I don't think it's referring to, you know, the highest of the highest in the land or, or anything such as that. Um, and, of course, we're treading into the, the conspiracy theories then, so... And also another myth that Warren resigned because of the Jack the Ripper murders, when, in fact, he didn't resign because of them. You know, that's, a, that's another misconception that I don't know if we have time to talk about. Right. Some of these things you can kind of... I don't know, look at it in different ways. I mean, the actual incident that caused the resignation wasn't directly related to Jack the Ripper, but I, I do think the general frustration played a large part. I, I don't think we can, you know, ignore that the Whitechapel murder investigation was weighing pretty heavily on his mind at the time. No, but you can't take it just in isolation because of his problems with Henry Matthews and the home office over right. how to run the police department, so... That's true. Yep. Okay, well, um, anything else that you, anyone has? Any any more big myths that we've left out, Howard? Uh, well, one more that I had here is for Dan. It's about Aberline stating that the Ripper was one of the highest of the land. And that, that emanated from Nigel Moreland, who's right. a journalist. And, and I'm sure you're aware of his 1978 uh, Ripper effort, the uh, Prince Jack film. Uh, if you wanted to touch on that. According to Moreland, Aberline had told him that he couldn't reveal anything except this. Of course, we knew who he was, one of the highest in the land. And we still see that comment uh, passed around, you know, not necessarily in totality, but in inference on uh, various message boards. Yeah, that that's one that we thankfully don't see as often as we used to, but... Um, Nigel Moreland, I believe he was editor of Criminologist and, and right. originally got into some of this stuff. Around this time, there, there was still a lot of the people telling stories more so than investigating the history. And um, there really doesn't seem to be anything to support the idea that, that he actually talked about this with Aberline. And it certainly doesn't match up at all with Aberline's known statements to right. the police and, and other places. All right. Well, thank you. All right. Well, um, I promise to keep this as close to an hour as possible. And I think uh, Howard was timing us. And yep. 52 minutes, buddy. 52 mm -hmm. minutes. Well, 52 minutes. We still have eight minutes left. So. <laughs> Throw one more out for us, Howard. All right, let's see. Um, well, we're talking about Aberline. How about Aberline's diaries? No, oh, jeez. That, that, that's, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's not even a myth. <laughs> yeah, that was, this got trotted out and then ignored pretty much after because they were so incredibly bad. Right, and uh, the, the, the um, poster magpie on um, jtrforums.com, uh, I think yesterday, printed up a list of uh, mythical uh, documents yeah. That, that have been uh, uh, rumored about the case over the years, which, which is pretty interesting. It includes the uh, Aberlein, um, and, and, and there is also uh, one related to Barnett, if I remember correctly. And um, mm -hmm. There's, there's uh, about a half a dozen um, mystery documents that, that um, authors have claimed to have seen, but um, no one else has seen. Right. The, I think the big one there is the Chronicles of Crime that uh, allegedly was written by Charles Dutton. Was it Charles Dutton? 
Thomas Dutton. Thomas Dutton. Dr. Thomas Dutton, yeah. Yeah, nobody's ever seen that, and it just seemed to be extremely convenient that it supported whatever it was that they were talking about at the time, you know? It's like, oh, he said this, and oh, we've got a book that nobody else can see that backs me up, and oh, he said this, and this book says that, too. Now, that concerned Drew, didn't it? It concerned... The drowned doctor theory, or... Well, it concerned so many different things. It was used in different ways. It was kind of a an, an all general excuse for anything that he wanted to write about, but didn't have any evidence for. And speaking of Druitt, we have the Druitt document. Uh, the Australian sort of published in 1890. Uh, the East End Murder. I knew him. Supposedly right. uh, uh, published down under that nobody's been able to trace. That Druittists especially have drawn on. Right. So not only um, do we have uh, myths in books, but we have myths about books. About books, right. yes. <laughs> right. Who, who, crea- who created that, um, the, the Down Under one? Who created that? Was that Farson? Farson reported that. Yeah, Farson reported it, right. But he, Farson, his, his uh, efforts were to basically invite the public to tell, them, tell him anything they knew about the case. So he just invited anyone and everyone to share what they might have heard from, you know, their parents. And, and a large amount of that just has never, I mean, it, it can't be verified by any source. And so much of that just when it's things that you'd think that we'd be able to find some evidence for, the people have gone looking for it and they can't find most of that. Right. And, and I don't think anyone really should be surprised. Uh, w- one more myth. Um Unless anybody else has another one. One more myth is that after the Kelly murder, the police presence died down due to the fact that the police, you know, surreptitiously, they knew who the Ripper was. It was either Druitt or that he was incarcerated. And I believe it was Martin Fido uh, that first came came out with the fact that the police presence um, was uh, reduced due to the uh, budget. Is that correct, correct, Dan? Well, they had, uh, you know... The police were really swarming the East End at the time. We think about police these days, and they're kind of in their cars miles away, and they get a call and they come in. But back then, they were on the beat, and at many times you could just look in any direction and see one somewhere. And they brought in even more from other districts to try to catch the killer red-handed because really that was their best way of going at it. The killer was killing people on the streets, and they were hoping to catch him in the act or escaping, you know, with blood on him, something along those lines. Right. Uh, um, so they were... Go ahead. No, go ahead, Dan. Uh, well, I was just going to say that, you know, it was expensive to bring all those people in. And then I think after the Mary Kelly case, they were looking at it and they're like, well, our whole um, idea here was that we'd catch him in the act on the street. And now he's gone to killing people indoors. Right. Why spend the money when it's not paying off? Right. And Robert? Um, I was just going to say, though, that uh, there was still a very large police presence at the beginning of 1889. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, even more so than uh, September of 1888, previous month. Um, I I think Stuart Evans uh, published some numbers on this on the casebook, which were unfortunately lost. Uh, but, But after... Uh, subsequent murders, though, we also see a spike. Um, when Alice McKenzie was murdered in July of 1889, uh, once again, there's a spike in, in police presence, um, with Monroe uh, believing her to be a Ripper victim. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and, and the fact that the case remained open until 1892, I mean, clearly shows that, that the police were still working on it, still actively pursuing it, and that they did not know who the Ripper was. Right. I know so many people just sort of think that everything came to an end at the end of uh, November, even the beginning of November of 1888, and really the investigation went on for years. Um, We've got a, like the autumn of terror, the the two months when all the main things were going on has been drummed into people's heads, but there's really so much more to the case. The police were very busy after that, and that's where a lot of the suspects came in. Other people were killed who could conceivably have been killed by the Ripper. So I, I think the general concept that it was only those two months there is really kind of 
blinding people to lots of possibilities. It's yeah, it's too narrow a focus, and uh, the case is much bigger and much longer than that. Mm-hmm. Y- you know, and it, and it even goes way beyond Warren, as we see. Like it, it went to Monroe succeeded uh, Warren, and then even after Monroe, uh, Bradford Bradford was on the case. Uh, uh, in 1890, so you, we went through three uh, metropolitan commissioners uh, mm-hmm. during the, during Jack the Ripper's reign or the Whitechapel murder. Mm-hmm. All right, You're there, John. All righty, well that will bring um, me in it. Oh, go ahead, Robert. You have one one last question. Yeah, I think uh, uh, the issue of handedness. How do people feel about that? When uh, Llewellyn first came out with that statement that the Ripper may be left-handed and then later seemed to recant on that, what does everyone think about that? Is that a myth or...? Let's have Mike uh, pipe in here first. Ambidextrous. (laughs) 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 Yeah, it's definitely interesting. Um, When I first started writing um, and researching Jack the Ripper... I actually used my wife as a model um, and stood around her and tried positioning myself in positions that I thought the Ripper would have stood in. And you know, I'm right-handed, so naturally I was using my right hand to to use all the cuts. So it, it's difficult because I mean, as well with the the ferociousness of the cuts and stuff like that, you know, how can anyone say if it's left or right in a right-handed person? I mean, I know these guys were trained, but you know, some of the states that the victims were left in, um, how could anyone ascertain for sure just what hand the Ripper was? And even if we knew, would it still bring us any closer to a suspect? Mike, you didn't go all the way, did you, buddy? No, I never. (laughs) Okay, okay. And what what does everyone else think about that, Dan? Um, Well, I think that's one of the ones that was very... uh, quickly dispensed with as far as the police were concerned. Zluan backed off the idea and certainly the angle of the attack would be different based upon whether the victim was standing up at the time, whether he came from behind, whether he came from the front. And what it looks like is that the woman was actually laying on the ground at the time that he cut the throats. So really, he could have been standing to the left or the right and therefore you know, the direction of the cut could just be where he was standing and not which hand he was using. Um, Or if she was was on the ground, yeah. Yeah. So I I don't think the the doctors really put much stock in the idea that he was left-handed, but it's one of those things that you see turn up time and time again. You know, whenever someone in a newspaper somewhere is writing about famous left-handers, they'll bring up Jack the Ripper and... Well, that's what I, that's what that's why I brought it up because it keeps showing up. I mean, even in the 1980, 1988 miniseries with Michael Caine, you know, uh, they mm-hmm. said the killer's left-handed, you know, and uh, but it but it shows up everywhere. Like you said, every time everyone writes a newspaper article or a magazine article, the handedness issue comes out. That's why I just wanted to briefly touch on it. Well, there's so many things that once they get reported or published somewhere, they just they don't die. You know, people later go ahead and they look for the most famous source they can or the easiest source they can, and they report the same thing, and it just gets used over and over. Okay, well, on that note, I think we're going to wrap it up, guys. Okay. Um, You have been listening to RipperCast, the podcast on Jack the Ripper. This was episode four, Sour Grapes. And our special guest was the editor of Ripper Notes magazine, Dan Norder. And I want to thank Dan for being on today. It was a great show. Believe oh, well, you're welcome. I was glad to be invited. It was a good time. And I also want to thank our, our regular roundtable with Howard Brown from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. So it's good to be here. Mike Covell is our man in Hull. It's always a pleasure. A pleasure to have you here also. And we have Robert McLaughlin up in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. And thanks again. And uh, be sure to turn it, tune in next week. Because every Sunday we're recording a new episode of RipperCast. So th- th- uh, you can reach us at www.rippernet.com in the podcast uh, link up at the top of the page. 
And we're also available uh, in the iTunes Music Store. Um, keyword Jack the Ripper, and you want to select the podcast section, and you can subscribe and get our free podcasts downloaded to iTunes um, as soon as uh, they get around to uploading it, which typically takes about 24 hours after it's available on rippernet.com. So rippernet.com is the first place to get it. And uh, I would invite you all guys to go, all the listeners to go to the show notes where we will provide uh, links to um, Ripper Notes and all of the uh, sourceable uh, information mentioned in today's show. Where are links available, uh, it, there, it will be there um, on the RipperNet website. So until next week, uh, th- thanks everybody. And... And uh, we'll see you next time.